So I don't think that any of the biblical writers had any category for a message going out in this kind of way, just going out over the airways, into devices, all over the world. But I do think that the biblical writers had solid categories for trying to help people that they weren't physically with. And if you think about it, this is pretty much all of the New Testament epistles. They were writing to help people that they weren't with. And even though I'm certainly not an apostle, I feel like today I'm, I'm somewhat uh, leaning on their, their precedent here and, and, and trying to reach out to people that I wish I was with this morning but can't be. And so this morning I want us uh, to go to 1 Timothy 3. That's where we're going to camp out this morning. If you have your Bibles open to 1 Timothy 3, where Paul is literally telling Timothy as he is pastoring the church in Ephesus that I, I wish I could be with you. I can't be with you, so I want to instead write to you and give you some instructions about how you ought to act, how you ought to navigate the, the uncertain the uncharted territories that the, the uncharted waters that t- that Timothy is uh, is navigating as he pastors a church that's beginning to face increasing persecution. So, First Timothy three, we're just going to look at verses uh, fourteen, fifteen, and sixteen, just three verses instead of uh, reading them as we normally would. I'm just going to kind of walk through them verse by verse. But as you as you turn there. Um, I was just thinking this week about how many confusing situations that I've had to navigate that I've never had to navigate before. I've never had to go to the grocery store and really think, do I want to buy enough toilet paper for my family to be able to have enough toilet paper for two months, or do I want to be a good citizen and a good Christian and just buy enough for the near future, trusting God that he will provide in some way? Then I'm a little bit embarrassed as to how long it took for me to answer that question. I mean, do we live stream these things? Do we organize gatherings of, well, last week 50 around town and now this week 10? You know, how do we step into all the uncertainty that's been thrust upon us And then even just thinking, like, how do we navigate the potential of having all of our kids in our home for the next five months, possibly? What does that mean for my job? What does that mean for my wife's job? What does that mean for the classes that she's taking? And then just watching inside the church, at least, certainly outside the church, but inside the church, just how much disagreement there is on how we're supposed to navigate this. You know, there there are godly people on one side saying this is something that we should take seriously. We need to prepare. Uh, This is going to be a a real situation in our city. And then you have very godly people on the other side who who are saying, listen, God's sovereign. We don't need to panic. uh, And and we should probably go about life as usual. There are people over here who, who would say, we need to worship. It doesn't matter what the government says. We trust in a sovereign God and we know that he can, uh, he can protect us as he sees fit. And then you have people over here who would say, no, we need to obey our government and we need, to, uh, we need to care about our neighbors and gathering would pose a real threat. We could really be putting people at risk. And so these are, these are confusing times anyway. And then you add the stress of the uncertainty. You add the, the financial stress and the health stress. And I really don't think there could be, there's a better time to step back and look at what the Apostle Paul has to say to Timothy about how he should conduct himself himself as he navigates these uncertain, these uncertain scenarios, these uncharted waters um, that he's navigating in Ephesus and see what we can learn 
uh, at Orlando Grace Church during this time of a global pandemic. So we're just going to look at these three verses, and we're going to see that Paul says that understanding how we should conduct ourselves, uh, he says that we're going to understand how to conduct ourselves when we know who we are, what we do, and who we serve. That's basically how these three verses are going to break down. So first, who we are. Let's look at verses 14 and 15. I hope to come to you soon. But I'm writing these things so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. So did you see it? We are the household of God. And and Paul, I don't think, is talking about the universal church here, although I think you could make some inferences and applications. Paul's talking about the church that Timothy is pastoring. That church is a household of God, a household of the living God. And in a similar way, even though we as Orlando Grace Church, we're scattered all around town right now, we are a people who is who are a household of God, a household of the church of the living God. So what in the world does that actually mean? I can remember in Sunday school uh, growing up, my Sunday school teacher telling me uh, that I better not act the way that I was acting because that's not how you act in God's house. And while I can appreciate what my Sunday school teacher was trying to, well, especially appreciate what she was trying to accomplish, uh, but, but appreciate also what she was trying to say that's not at all what, God, what, what Paul is trying to communicate here in this verse. And to understand what Paul's trying to communicate, there's something else that we really have to understand. And all of this is going to make sense. So we're going to have to do a little bit of heavy lifting for a second. Because if we understand the theme of the temple from Genesis to Revelation, then what Paul is saying about the household of God is going to make perfect sense. So just a second, let's go all the way back to Genesis. When I say temple, I'm talking about the place that God meets with man. The meeting place between God and man. And when you go all the way back to Genesis 1, you see that Eden is a form of temple because God and man dwelled together, physically interacted until it was all destroyed because of our rebellion. And then God continued to pursue people through beginning through the Israelites. Ultimately, we know to, to to, to reach the entire world. And as the Israelites were navigating the wilderness... God instructed them to build a tabernacle. And at the center of this tabernacle was the place that God had designated for man to meet with him. It wasn't like it was a home for God. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't like that's where God lives. God's everywhere. That's just the place that God had ordained for us to meet with him. And then you fast forward a little bit and you can see once Israel moved into the promised land, got more settled under Kings David and Solomon, they got a permanent temple where God's presence dwelled and man met with God. The problem was though that the Israelites continued to rebel, continued to disobey, continued to stray to the point that God removed his presence from that temple. So it was a building, but it was no longer a temple in the, the way that, it, that, that we would biblically define temple. But God wouldn't stop there. He would temple in an even more significant way. In the words of the Apostle John in John 1, John says, In the beginning was the Word. This is Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This word dwelt is literally tabernacled. 
God tabern- Jesus tabernacled with us. Jesus in the flesh. He came down here and he was a type of temple. He was a meeting place. God and man really meeting each other. And Jesus would pay the penalty for our sin so that w- this distance between us and God t- such that we can only meet with him in these, these temple spots, that that gap can be eliminated, that we can be reunited with God because those of us who believe in Jesus Christ and his life, death, and resurrection, we receive his Holy Spirit. And now, this is where this all comes together, we are the temple. We as individuals are temples because the Holy Spirit's inside of us and that is a place that man and God now meet. So when you come here, when you come to Orlando Grace Church on Sundays, you're not entering the church. You're, in a real sense, bringing the church in with you. Right now, this is just a building. This is just a building with with, with me and a couple other people here. But when you come in, that's when it becomes the church because all of you are temples because you have the Holy Spirit living inside you. And this is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians... Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. So I'm reading from the ESV, but if you read from the DSV, that is the Deep South version of the Bible, which is, might be a little more faithful to the Greek here, it wouldn't say you are the temple, it would say y'all are the temple. The Greek literally says y'all, all of you make up this household of God because you're temples. And this has major implications on Lone Ranger Christianity. We weren't designed to go at this alone. And and you hear increasingly people who would say, I believe in God, but it's a very private thing for me. My my faith is 100% private and 0% corporate. And you would even hear, I I think, from very committed Christians, this this real premium on private devotions and private worship. And I don't want to take anything away from that, but I, I want to say that God has provided for us in our gathering as the household of God a blessing that we can't get in any other way. And I really genuinely hope that one of the ways that God uses this, this quarantine, this pandemic, this time that we can't meet together, I hope that he just instills in us a deep loss, that this isn't the way that it's designed to work and just a higher value of the opportunity that we have to come together on Sunday. None of us was meant to live the Christian life alone. I mean, you take me and you put me on a desert island and, and even give me a Bible. I am not going to thrive in my Christian walk because I wasn't designed to do it alone. It's not just because I'm, I'm, a, I'm an extrovert. It's because that's not how God designed the Christian life to be lived. He designed it to be lived in community with other Christians. And that community culminates in this weekly gathering where we come together as a church and we pray together and we sing together and we, we fellowship together, we hear the word taught together, we take communion together. This is what happens in the household of God. And knowing who we are as a part of this household, it tangibly affects the way that we understand what we're called to do. So when I was growing up, I would not say that I was the easiest child to raise. And I can remember my dad saying to me, Jim, this is not 
how you're supposed to be acting. You're a Davis, and Davises do not act this way. And, and what he was saying, there's something about my status as a Davis that merits better decisions and more wisdom than what I was showing. And in the same way, I think Paul is saying, you are a member of the household of God. And the more you understand who you are as a part of that household, it's going to shape the decisions that you make, the way that you carry yourself, and ultimately your whole understanding of your purpose in this world. So how in the world do we apply that during this, this very unique season uh, in our church as we're quarantined, uh, if we're separated from each other, as we can't gather here? Well, first, I would say that, that we need to acknowledge this is not an ideal situation, but we would also say this isn't a permanent situation. We, we believe that, that this is going to end, that we are going to come back together. If we didn't believe that this was going to end, we would be making very different decisions. But we as elders in this church know that, that in this season, there are things that we need to do to try and bridge the gap between now and when we can all come back together. So the elders have established five guiding principles during this time to help, uh, to help us make wise decisions as the household of God. And so those, those principles are, first, we will strive to be a regular presence in the lives of our people. A regular presence as elders and staff. And this could happen through, uh, through a lot of ways. One of the ways that this is going to happen, uh, you know, we do the, the monthly lunch with Jim. It's going to become a, a weekly Zoom with Jim lunch, BYO, bring your own lunch, B-Y-O-L, um, and it's going to be a time where we can come together over, Zoom is what we've chosen because it's a really simple, easy way uh, for everybody to, to chat online, and we'll have, there's lots of instructions going out to you, but uh, we're going to do things like that. There are going to be ways the elders engage in this time, the staff engage in this time, because we want to be a regular presence in your lives when we can't physically be together. Second principle, we want to walk with a deep sense of God's sovereignty and our responsibility. So those are both biblical values that we would hold up and affirm. And so we want to have sober minds, acknowledging the seriousness of the situation, but we also want to have a deep belief that God is in control, that he can do anything he wants, and whatever it is that he and his wisdom chooses to do, he will use that for his glory and for our good. And so if we only have sober minds without any understanding of God's sovereignty at play here, then we're just going to panic. We're going to be terrified if we just see the seriousness and not God's hand in it. But if, on the other hand, all we have is we lean on is God's sovereignty without understanding that we have a responsibility to be wise and and cautious in this scenario, then we are going to come across, I think, very insensitive and uncaring and maybe even naive. Third principle, we want to look for ways to provide real community. They've, we call this social distancing. I think that's probably a bad word. What, what we're trying to accomplish is physical distancing. But physical distancing does not have to be social distancing. Now, there are ways that we can still engage in community. And we're, you're going to be hearing about a lot of these things. But we are devoted to, to, to coming alongside the singles in quarantine who feel very isolated, to coming alongside the parents during this quarantine who feel very overwhelmed, and to coming alongside the students in our midst who probably feel very bored right now. And we want to come together and build a real sense of biblical community. Fourth principle, we want to look for opportunities to be the church at this very unique time. 
We want to look for opportunities to, to care for people, um, to help people. We, we want to identify people who need help and people can, who, who can provide help in very different ways, and we want to put them together. And we want to be learning from each other as to what new missional opportunities this, this season in, in the church, in the global church at this point, provides us. And then the fifth and last principle, we want to execute weekly worship safely. So this week, this is what we're doing. If you're probably watching us over at Facebook Live or, or YouTube Live, um, and, and we're learning as we go, but we want to be able to come into your homes in some way. Uh, and we would love to give you resources, things you could do with the kids and, and prayers and songs. And we're learning as we go. We're very much making it up as we go. There was no seminary class on how to lead a church through a global pandemic in an internet age. But we're, we're learning, and by God's grace, we feel like he's showing us some things. But none of these principles would have come about if we didn't understand who we are as the household of God. But once we understand who we are as the household of God, then we're able to secondly see what Paul wants us to see in verse 15, what we do as the household of God. So I'm going to read verse 15. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. And and here's the new part, a pillar and buttress of truth. So Paul is doing a uniquely Ephesian thing right here. Remember, he's, he's writing to Timothy, who's pastoring the church in Ephesus. And when he says a buttress and pillar of truth, he's playing on, on the temple of Artemis in, in Ephesus. This temple of Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was this massive structure with over 100, 100 pillars, each of which was over 60 feet tall. And all of them supported this massive roof that communicated to everyone who came into Ephesus the glory and the majesty and the wonder and the awe of the goddess Artemis. And so what Paul is saying is that we are pillars of a stronger truth, of a more real truth. And we as Christians, we have the opportunity to support and show the glory and the awe and the majesty of the one true God. John Stott says the church depends on truth for its existence. The truth depends on the church for its defense and proclamation. You know, I wonder if Paul could have ever imagined the billions of pillars that would be produced over the next 2,000 years that would support the truth of God. And do you know how many pillars are left in the temple of Artemis? Not one. And we may not need to defend biblical truth necessarily against worship of Artemis or Greek gods and goddesses, but we do live in a, in a culture that similarly has a universalistic understanding of God, that we have a very openness to embracing whatever kind of God you see fit to, to worship. So very practically, I want to say, what is truth and how do we, as members of Orlando Grace Church and friends of Orlando Grace Church, support that church in this very unique age that we're in? I'm going to use John MacArthur's definition of truth. I find it very helpful. He says, Truth is that which is consistent with the mind, will, character, glory, and being of God. 
So we talked a few weeks ago about how Martin Luther, he said before the fall, people could walk through the woods and they would just hear God communicating truth to them constantly. But when, when people fell, that no longer happened. And it wasn't that God wasn't talking anymore. He continued to talk. The problem is that we ceased to listen. We can't hear God speaking truth to us all the time. So what God did is he chose to overcome our inability to naturally hear his truth spoken to us all the time. And so he decided to communicate to us in the clearest possible way by giving us his word, his Bible, that we could know everything that we need to know for life, for godliness, for salvation. So how does this practically play out right now? Honestly, I think we have opportunities right now that, that we normally don't have because now we, we're not just saying truth. We have an opportunity to display that truth. I mean, it's one thing to know something. It's a whole nother thing to actually live it out. And that is the opportunity that we have before us right now. We have to think about who we are as a household of God and how we are to behave so that we can be buttresses and pillars in this unique season. And I think that in light of the stress that people are experiencing, the disagreements that people are experiencing, we need to think before we go outside the church, how we interact with each other inside the church. Because I know it's easy to in our stress and our confusion and the uncertainty to lash out at people, maybe just because we've been cooped up with them for longer than we're used to being cooped up with them. It's easy to disagree inappropriately in public places, online, wherever. We need to think as a household of God, how do we love each other well? How do we display the truth that we have in God's word that we would effectively be able to proclaim it, to be able to model it? And I think we would all do well to listen to James when he says, know this, my brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. So we start by modeling this truth then we sh- to each other, then we show it to other people. But there's one more thing that Paul says. We, we need to know who we are. We need to know what we're supposed to do. But then Paul says there's something else we have to understand if we're going to know how to navigate confusing situations and, in his words, behave as we ought. And that last thing is we need to know who we serve. Paul says in the clearest possible way, we serve Jesus Christ. He calls Jesus the mystery of godliness, which makes sense if, if we're, we're trying to understand how we ought to navigate and conduct ourselves and behave, then, then it's, it's summed up very well in godliness, godly behavior. But it would be easy to, to, to read this and think, wow, if, if it's a mystery to Paul, uh, how in the world am I supposed to understand this mystery of godliness? And this is where English-Greek translation, it, it, it doesn't do us a lot of favors because we, there's a nuance in the word mystery in ancient Greek that's different than our modern English. So we hear the word mystery and we think something that we will never know. So we things, say things like, women are just a mystery. I don't know. I don't ever expect to fully understand them. But in the Greek, it means something different. It means something that we previously did not understand, but now that thing has been revealed to us. 
And maybe, maybe the vast majority of culture still does not understand, but there is a core that has, this truth has been revealed, to whom this truth has been revealed. That's the way Paul is using this mystery. And he's saying in no uncertain terms that Jesus Christ is this mystery. Jesus isn't just one among many gods. He is not just a myth. He is not a crutch. He isn't even just the single most influential human being who has ever existed on this earth. Jesus is the only person to have lived a perfect life, who has come back from the dead, who has made a credible case that he is God of everything and on mission to bring us home. That's what verse 16 is trying to communicate. And in verse 16, it's interesting because it seems like there was this already accepted hymn, something that was already known, and that's what Paul is using to communicate who it is that they serve and how that's going to help them to understand how they navigate these situations. And so I want to just walk quickly through verse 16, and we'll be done. Paul says there are basically six things in this one verse that we need to understand about Jesus Christ that's going to help us to navigate this this situation. First, Paul says he was manifested in the flesh. The NIV says that he appeared in the flesh. So it wasn't... It wasn't that there was no Jesus, and then all of a sudden, 2,000 years ago, there was Jesus. Jesus has always existed, but he put, took on flesh to come into our world, fully God and fully man, to feel our pain and our plight. And then secondly, Paul says he was vindicated by the Spirit. All Jesus' claims, they were substantiated. They were vindicated when he rose from the dead. It says over, Paul says over 500 people saw Jesus after the resurrection. You know, for me, when I, when I was walking into Christianity, the evidence of the resurrection was one of the, most, one of the most convincing aspects to me. Because when you look at all the evidence of the resurrection, I don't think there's any other explanation of what happened to Jesus Christ than that he really did resurrect from the dead. He was vindicated by the Spirit, and that really merits our devotion and our worship. Third, Paul says he was seen by angels. So it wasn't just humans who attested to his great deity. The angels were there. They were there before he was born. They were there right after he was born. They were there during his ministry. They were there at the tomb after his resurrection. Fourth, Paul says he was proclaimed among the nations. So this word is going out to every tribe and every tongue and every nation. The, the Romans, they wanted to suppress this knowledge and this word of Jesus Christ, which they could have easily done if they could have just provided the body, which they couldn't. And this word proclaimed that's being used, it's the same word that's used when there's a new Caesar, which they would have called a new Lord, and they would have sent people to every city around the empire to proclaim this new, this new Caesar. So now you have people going from city to city proclaiming a new Lord, only it is not a Caesar. This new Lord is Jesus Christ. He is proclaimed among the nations. And then fifth, not only was he proclaimed, he was believed on in the world. So this, this isn't just news. It isn't just a, a movement. This isn't just for one class of people or one ethnicity or one geography. This is for everyone. And this hasn't stopped happening for 2,000 years. It's so easy to look at Christianity in the West and feel like it's waning, not realizing that half of all the people who have ever believed in Jesus Christ are living today. 
he is believed on in the world. And then finally, he was taken up in glory, which is, of course, referring to the ascension. Jesus publicly ascended some feet into the air. I, I, you know, I don't think it was like, you know, Jesus just went up like a lost balloon until nobody could see him anymore. He ascended some feet, and at some point, the fabric between our world and the heavenly world was ripped apart, and Jesus entered into the heavenly world where he sat on his throne from where he would control everything in all space and all time from one location, interceding to the Father on our behalf, collecting the saints, and preparing for his triumphant return to this world that he loves and he longs to recover and redeem. Jesus is the mystery. And if Jesus is the mystery, if he's the key, if he's revealed to us, then it makes logical sense that he's the answer. If we're trying to understand how we navigate these uncertain times, these confusing times, the answer is Jesus We lean into him, understanding how much he loves us and how much he's done for us and what he offers us in giving us his spirit as temples of the household of God. We need Jesus in this season. We need his wisdom. We need his spirit. And I think most of all, we need him to constantly remind us that this is not our home. This is not our world. This is not our future. He is bringing about a world that will have no pain. It will have no strife. There will be no anxiety, no loneliness, no depression, and no viruses where we will get to live with him forever in perfection and glory without any kind of inhibiting factor at all. So as Christians, as we think on that end, as we focus on that end, between now and the beginning of that day, we should be wise, taking every precaution, because we know that wisdom is a godly virtue. We should be brave, trusting in the sovereignty of God, knowing that how, whatever transpires, however this goes, that God is controlling all things, nothing is outside of his control, and all of this will work out for his glory and for our good. As Christians, we should be caring looking out for the needs of our our family and friends and neighbors, especially if they're elderly, especially if they have conditions that put them at risk. And above all, as Christians, we should be loving, not just being willing, but desiring to put other people's interests and needs ahead of ourselves. And before I finish, I just want to acknowledge that because of this unique medium right now, uh, there is a high likelihood that there's somebody in Orlando who, who... you're listening because maybe you're interested in God or you believe in God, but for some reason you're not connected to a church. Maybe life just got busy and you're not, and and you disconnected, or maybe there's some really deep wounds. I want you to hear from me today that God is calling you home, that he wants you to have a household that you can worship with, that you can plug into. And my hope is that when we finally come back together, that I get to meet you, you, that you get to come and worship and experience the blessing of being a real part of the household of God the way that he has designed it to be. So if that's you and you need anything in this time, or if really any of you listening need anything, we want you to feel the freedom to reach out because we want to pray for you and we want to help you wherever we can. So if you're watching on Facebook, you can DM us or you can go on a website and email us, but we want to be a church 
in the truest sense, which is going to mean glorifying God, proclaiming his love, and helping people because we understand the lengths that Jesus Christ went to to help us, to save us. So with that in mind, I'm just going to close this in prayer and you are free to enjoy the rest of your Sunday at home. God, we are so thankful that you, you wouldn't just lead us with a carrot on a stick, but that you would make us a new creation, that you would make us temples, that you would make us a household, that you would provide for us in so many ways through your word, through your spirit. And I pray today in every single home, on every monitor that's watching this, and even the people who can't, parts of our family who can't watch for whatever reason, I pray that you would work within us this deep joy that you're, you're in control and, and we don't need to be fear in fear because you have opportunities for us, real opportunities to proclaim your glory and your love and to display that we just don't say something to be true. We deeply believe that it's true. So I pray for everybody in our family that you would keep us safe, that you would keep us wise, and that you would use us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.